Hey everyone, Adela here. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Podcast Brunch Club podcast. I'm thrilled to bring you this interview between my co-host, Sarah De Silva of Audible Feast and Hilary Jacobs Hendel. Hillary was a guest on one of the episodes that we listened to as part of our June podcast playlist, which covered the theme of emotions. She was the guest on the Parenting Teens podcast, and we were lucky enough to get to dive deeper with her into this topic. To see the full playlist, visit podcastbrunchclub.com emotion. A quick note, we had a bit of audio difficulty, so I apologize if it doesn't sound great, but I think you'll enjoy Sarah and Hillary's discussion enough to forget about any scratchy audio issues. So hello, Hillary. Thank you for talking with me today about your episode from the Parenting Teens podcast, where you talked about how it's not always depression. The Podcast Brunch Club playlist included part one of your guest appearance on that show, but I also listened to part two, so I'm excited to pick your brain about a few things from each episode. First of all, I love this idea that core emotions are universal. It made me think of the movie Inside Out. Um, you know, that they can't be stopped and we, there's no, we don't need to and we shouldn't suppress or block them or defend against them. But why is it that we try so hard to do that? Why do we defend against these core emotions? Well, Sarah, first, let me tell you, I'm delighted to be talking to you today. This is my favorite topic uh, to talk about emotions. And that's such a good question because I, I'm not really sure of, the, of a total answer for that. But when I, I've thought about it quite a bit, you know, you're asking, you get, we get messages in our culture that, that emotions should be kind of bypassed and we need to be, you know, use our mind to push through and to be productive. And I think this goes all the way back to maybe even Descartes who said, I think therefore I am this idea that our thoughts are what are important and define us. And then the sort of the Puritan work ethic of just pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with it. And, and also notions about emotions. I think, you know, when you look at people confuse having emotions for displaying and acting out emotions, and those can look destructive. For example, anger, if you see somebody hitting or being mean to someone, people equate that with anger. Whereas I would think of that as the acting out of anger and that anger itself is a wholly internal experience uh, that only when we choose to, we can have, we choose to how we translate it when we communicate it and it can be constructive or dis- destructive. But I think, mm-hmm. you know, going back to olden times with people killing each other and, or falling apart and hysteria that people equate emotions with bad things that are counter to a good culture. And my, one of my main messages is to really try to undo that myth that you can be in touch with emotions and be fully productive. And it's not about wearing your heart on your sleeve, but about coming into uh, neurobiological balance, really, that there's a biology to emotions that I don't think people were aware of and uh, that now is gaining some more attention. Yeah, I think that's really um, 
I guess, a really intelligent way of thinking about emotions. Maybe intelligence is, I don't know if that's the right word, but I, I like the idea of separating it from the actions that come from the emotion versus the actual emotion itself. Um, That's where the choice happens sometimes. um, And that's where, um, that's where we can do a lot of work within ourselves to improve how we react to those emotions. Exactly. They take take over ourselves. Yeah. It's a huge distinction. It's like that. It's so important if, you know, in a way, if there's one, a few things to take away from this, it's really that distinction that as I tell my, my patients and my clients that we want to, we want to get you accustomed to noticing what it's like for you. And it's different for all of us, you know, you to experience an emotion, which means to know you're having it, to feel it in your body, to listen to the impulses. And the very last step, because people will say to me, well, what do I do? What do I do? And I say, well, let's first be with the feeling, listen to it. And the very, very last step is to then think through bringing on the the thinking brain, so to speak, online to think through the best course of action that's in line with your life goals or your goals for this relationship or your goals for this moment. And you're right. That's the choice point. That's where there is choice. Yeah. We don't have choice okay. of whether emotions get triggered, but we have a choice of how we deal with them and what we do with them. Yeah. Right. Right. And kind of along those lines too, even though these core emotions are universal, everyone has these core emotions. Um, you, you say in the podcast, they're not who you are. And I really, really like that. So tell us more about what do you mean by that, that, that's not who you are. Those emotions are not who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that there's this concept of, of a self, right, which um, you know, philosophers have been talking about since the dawn of time. But again, because of, of neuroscience and research, we are now coming to understand what the self means from an actual place in, in the brain and the body. So if, and that's kind of the way that I think about it throughout the book. So if we have this, again, neurobiological core self, which is how you came out, you know, when you were born, sort of your disposition, the sense of who you are, this is me. And when you feel it, you can sort of say, I feel like me versus, you know, when we're hijacked by a feeling, we're like, oh my God, what has happened to me? You know, what did you do to me with this thing that you said to me or this thing that you did to me. So we want to differentiate this idea of of a calm, reflective self that can know and be aware that we are being triggered to have this kind of force, this emotional force wash through us that is telling us to bring attention to something that's happening in the environment. And often people will say when I'm helping them, let's say with with anger, which is a tough one for everyone in our culture. I don't want to be an angry person. And, you know, I'll immediately try to distinguish anger is just an emotion. It's like a biological program. It comes up. And then as we all know, we feel angry. And then maybe uh, a moment later or a week later or uh, a month later, we, okay, I don't feel that feeling anymore. It's gone. And you're left kind of if you're lucky, back with the sense of me, I'm sort of, I'm feeling normal, my kind of how I define myself and feel myself. Mm-hmm. So that it's important not to totally identify with one's emotions, because 
just one, it doesn't make biological sense. And it's also detrimental to the way we feel about ourselves because we are emotions happen and then they resolve. Now, many of your listeners might, might not experience that way because they're kind of stuck in a state, which might be an emotional, like a mood that they've known, you know, some people who've been through terrible adversity, never know what it's like to be calm and to feel like themselves. They're always in some uh, kind of a hijacked state and it feels like a, a normal state. And so you've got that ranging from people who are relatively, their nervous system is what we call regulated. It comes back to a baseline of normal where they feel okay and they um, feel calm. And these C words that I talk about in the book, that's how you know you're in yourself. You feel calm. You have this ability to get curious in yourself and curious in others. Usually when we're like triggered into a high state of anxiety or fear or shame, we don't have, we, it it takes a lot of work to be able to slow down and notice that that's happening to you. We get pulled into it. So this idea of differentiating the self from your emotions not only makes sense biologically, but it's just useful when, when you're learning to uh, handle emotions and to try to feel more emotionally healthy. And we want to kind of come back to this idea of a calm, curious, confident, courageous, connected self. These are all the capacities of the self when we're not being hijacked by strong emotions. That's, I love that. Mm, thank you. Um, those C words are, that's really good. Those are easy yeah. to remember. Yeah. Um, sounds like I'm going to have to get your book. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about resilience. Um, you advocate for it, for creating resilience within kids. Um, especially by acknowledging that you recognize a child's emotions, um, even a teenager. Um, and, uh, for me personally, I do want to get a tiny bit personal. I've reflected a lot on resilience within my own life journey as a child, then as an adult, and now as a parent. Um, and I think sometimes resilience has been a huge thing for me. Um, and it's always something I've been so proud of that I've kind of held on to throughout my life. But for some people who are always practicing that resilience, uh, exercising that muscle, it sometimes feel like you're out, feels like you're always struggling and it's wonderful to have resilience, but you know, that kind of button is always being activated. It's hard to keep charging forward. So what do you advice do you have for people who are in that situation, both as a, as a child or as an adult who are struggling with that or are thinking, man, I am always having to be the resilient one, but also as a parent for people, you know, raising kids who are, kind of always, always charging forward and showing that, exercising that resilience muscle? Yeah, that's a, that's a huge question, Sarah. So <laughs> I guess I, I, I want to sort of s- slow down you and I for a moment, kind of walking the walk that I would do to, I guess I'm interested how you define, how you're defining resilience. I think, you know, so we make sure we're on the same page yeah, I think yeah. I think of resilience as um, um, being able to um, get back up again when something doesn't go your way, mm-hmm. being able to um, be yourself in a situation where you're uncomfortable, um, just kind of having a, a positive outlook that things are gonna gonna work out okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I think those are the kind of the, the main things that I think about when I think resilience. Yeah. And so I think, um, and there's some great books on resilience is a function of a lot of different things. One, just, uh, the luck of being born with a resilient nervous system and the luck uh, or lack of luck with being born into either a family or a society um, where there is uh, adversity uh, and a lot of adversity and trauma versus less adversity and trauma. So I think of resilience in two factors. Uh, one, just being aware of the, a person's surroundings and how much adversity and how much, what can we do with the environment to make it safe? Because people need to feel safe as defined by what the nervous system is saying is safe. In other words, so if a kid, a parent may say to a kid who is in distress, let's say a kid who's exhibiting depression and anxiety, well, you know, suck it up. There's nothing wrong. We feed you. you uh, you've got a roof over your head. Everything is fine. And yet to a child, if that child had words and most children don't have words to put on what they're experiencing, they may feel different from other kids. They may, their parents may fight or there may be a product of a divorce or a blended family. Um, one of the parents may suffer an illness or a psychological illness, or one of the parents may be, have been traumatized themselves and therefore relate not only in healthy ways, but in ways um, that their trauma manifests. So to create resilience, one we need to, especially where children are, is to really look at the environment and to talk to the kid and to take on their subjective experience of what's not working for them, if they can articulate it. And if they can articulate it, to really try to be in the kid's perspective, to look around and say what might not be a feeling of safety or consistency or calmness, what's going on that might be um, received by the child's nervous system as agitating or upsetting or scary or shaming, right? Most parents don't have an education in emotions, so they don't understand these ways that we were taught to parent, which didn't, don't necessarily help or we should say there are ways to be more helpful parents don't know about they're trying their best but we don't get, none of us get any skills on how to parent it's quite absurd mm -hmm. like the most important and the hardest job on earth and there's no coaching about it yeah but then the the, the way that we can create resiliency as we get older is why i wrote this book is a, it's the change triangle is a path to a resilient mind and body and it's through awareness and through being able to understand what our emotions are for and to work with our emotions and our thoughts and our physical sensations. It's kind of the trifecta of what we need to pay attention to and work with them to kind of become aligned and balanced so that we are less triggered, less blown off course by life events. Yeah. And if someone has had a lot of adversity and trauma as an adult, like when you said where people have to work extra hard to be resilient, it's mm -hmm. usually because there are neural networks which are which the the brain wires in connection with our environment. So if if um, let's say you were I don't know, do you want to give an example of adversity? So it's not coming from my same examples. I always yeah. <laughs> yeah um, I mean, it it could be 
something less dire than, you know, something, you know, extreme, but um, just being like, so I'm an, I'm an engineer. Most of the listeners know that. And so Mm -hmm. it being a constantly being the only woman in the room when you're in a meeting all the time, or, you know, just kind of a, um, you know, being singled out or something because you're the only woman and therefore, you know, somehow there's some opinions about where your, your place in that workplace, um, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff is kind of a constant, uh, to, it's not a, it's not, you know, I have the, my needs are met, but you right. know, the, the constant, uh, you know, kind of struggle, I would say of always having to fight for something just to be seen as equal. Yeah. So that's such a great example. Great example because so in there, and things are going to get more complicated as I talk before they get more <laughs> simple because we want to look at different moving parts. So that's an example, right, where the environment needs to change, right, where you're, where we need to look at what are your coworkers, your male coworkers doing. Unbeknownst to them, we're going to assume that it's not on purpose to, right. to bring about a feeling in you that doesn't feel great right. or that is triggering you. Let's say they, and let's say you can work with them great. Let's say they have no interest and you're really in sort of a, I want to say a hostile environment, but a challenging environment, Mm -hmm. right? Then let's say you and I were working together. I would be interested to know before we did anything, before you took any action, the same idea is what is this, this treatment bringing up in you? So again, without blaming you, we want to get curious on whatever their actions bring up that that are triggering you. In other words, uh, knowing that everybody is unique, we don't want to, I wouldn't want to make any assumptions just because I'm a woman and right now I can relate to what you're saying, but I wouldn't want to make assumptions that what that means to you would be the same thing that that would mean to me because depending on the way that our fathers were with us, it might have a different meaning. So if my father uh, was a feminist and you know told me it doesn't matter that these men are scared, that's why they're like that. And if you can just assert yourself, everything is going to be okay. And you know don't let anybody bully you, just speak your truth to power and it's going to be great. Whatever happens, uh, we'll handle it and deal with it and they can't fire you because of legal, blah, blah, blah. Versus a father that was oppressive and belittled his daughters, uh, you're going to have a different trigger and you're going to have a different response. So we'd want to get to know the emotions that the being in this room with men brought up for you and really honor them and validate. And I would want to know if these feelings happened if you float back in time, when is the first time you experienced this type of a feeling around groups of men? Did it happen, let's say, in middle school where you were triggered by boys in a group because, again, that something is going way back to your childhood home? Or, in fact, is it really fresh in the moment and I just, uh, you just needed some help and some kind of support hanging on to yourself and saying, you know, dudes, you know, you cannot talk to me that way. Are you aware that that is demeaning to women? And if they're not aware, you know, then you would take one tact. If they are aware and say they didn't care, then again, it's another, it's a conversation. And if you're in a, again, a hostile environment where nobody cares about being kind, it may not be a place you would want to stick around, or maybe it would be a place that you do voice a complaint. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate the comments too about validating and um, accepting the emotion that exists. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I really, you know, having been a student of therapy myself for many years, um, I really, um, I've heard that over and over and I, that's something I really appreciate. So if anyone's listening and they're thinking about, you know, whether they could benefit from um, counseling in any form, definitely that's something I've heard over and over. So hopefully that appeals to you listeners as well. And can um, I, can, before yeah. you move on, can I say one thing to listeners and whatnot? Um, one, you don't need a therapist to validate your own emotions. In fact, I wrote the book as a, an education so people could begin to validate their own feelings. And the other thing that I wanted to just make a point of is if we could just get over our feelings and like if you could be in a meeting and not feel angry, you know, with a bunch of men who perhaps were belittling to you or making you feel bad, if you could just get over it, you know, stop feeling fear, stop feeling your anger, just get over it like we're taught in our culture, then that would be fantastic. Like, and if you, if anybody out there knows how to do that, let me know. But the problem is that the way that the brain is wired, that there seems to be no way of getting over an emotion that you're, that's kind of coursing through your body because emotions are physical responses to the environment that we, ha- we developed in the brain for survival. So we've had this for, um, Uh, millions of years that we evolved this way because it keeps us safe. So it seems as if we cannot get over our emotions. We have a choice, two choices, really, like a fork in the road when you have a feeling. One is to block it and thwart it, which the body and the mind can do very well using anxiety and guilt and shame and defenses. These are the ways that we block emotional experience to stay in the good graces of our families and peer groups and and culture. But if we block emotions, they lead to all sorts of psychological symptoms. That's what causes depression. That's what causes anxiety. That's what causes every almost every symptom in the um, in the DSM-5, which is the book of symptoms and diagnoses that psychiatrists use. Personality disorders, drug addictions, these are all ways that we block emotions that are painful in our bodies and our minds. The other alternative is to learn to learn about emotions so that they're not as scary or, or scary or intense and that we can begin to work with emotions in healthy ways by validating them, by begin to get comfortable with the idea that they're physical sensations, but just the way you stub your toe and it can be intensely painful for a moment if you ride that wave and just breathe through it, the pain goes down. And so there's all sorts of techniques to be with feelings so that they don't cause traumatic stress in the body and lead to symptoms, but in fact that they inform us the way they're designed to do. They're a compass for living, and we move through them through them, and use our thoughts and then skillfully decide how to move forward in life, whether that's taking action or just using techniques to let the emotion flow through so that you return back to a baseline state of calm and, and uh, back to those C's, calm, curious, mm-hmm. compassionate, uh, that we're always trying to return our nervous system to a calm state as opposed to keep blocking emotions so that we get more and more in defensive and disconnected states. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a lot. No, it's a lot. It's good. The, the book explains everything. Yeah, I know. I'm <laughs> yeah, telling yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And it's accessible and no jargon. It's just using stories. Awesome. I know. I, yeah. I was reading about that. And um, we'll talk a little bit at the end, too, about your book. But I, I was reading that on your website. I, I like that um, 
you know, you make a big, big point of saying, you know, this is not like academic speak. This right. is, you know, for just regular people to read. It's a beach read. Yeah, <laughs> just very go. deep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's true, though. I wrote um, it to be like that because I don't like boring books. So yeah. Um, so in so some of the listeners may not have listened to, listened to the part two of this um, this two part episode that you did, but I did, and um, I liked this. I, I mean, I am a parent, so my my kids are young, but um, I want to be self aware and aware of what's going on with them. And um, how old are they? I huh? They are four and six. Okay. Um, so I want to, um, we've, we've talked a lot about the idea of self-worth with them. And, um, I just, I really want them to grow up, um, self-aware and believing that they have self-worth. And, um, I think that will set them on a great course forward. Um, but you talk about, um, what to do when your kid tells you they're depressed. Um, you give the advice to listen, 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 don't solve anything, um, which, you know, of course, many parents want to jump right to the solution. I'm going to help you fix this. Um, you want to protect your kid, of course. Um, how would a parent know uh, when it's at reached a point at which they should escalate and potentially seek some outside help? Yeah. Uh, I think it happens concurrently in your mind. So, you know, right off the get-go, I, I, I'm not advocating kind of waiting for the sake of waiting. I guess as a parent, there's always, it's advantageous to have two tracks going on. One, how you're connecting and how you're relating to the child. And two, what you're doing when you're not in front of the child, you know, either freaking out and panicking and talking to your partner, but ultimately um, being thoughtful about the various ways to begin to help and to start talking to people. So what I meant by uh, not immediately going into it is the moment your kid says, uh, I'm depressed, you know, just kind of going into gear before you're like, well, what is that? Let's, you know, honey, let's just sit down, even just, okay, you know, not sort of taking it not not letting the parents start your one's own fear get triggered to really as you're as you're and you're modeling this for confidence in the future that when something is wrong we think through it and we really get to understand what's going on and that I'm safe I'm a safe person you don't necessarily say that you show that that you can talk to me and you'll feel better at the end as opposed to more anxious because I'm so anxious about it. So the idea would be to, you know, to, depending on how old the kid is, if, if the child can talk through it. So let's sit down and have a cup of tea and tell me what's, what's been going on and what are you, what are you experiencing that makes you think you're depressed and um, what's it, what's it like and um, just kind of just really kind of listening and being quiet because kids tend to process slower and so just kind of being there um, you can see me now I'm just kind of like how I would be with a kid you know really what's going on tell me and when did this first start and did something happen and and what's it like you know you might share it's really you might kind of try to normalize it oh yeah this is something a lot of people go through because what you don't want to do is frighten the kid that there's something wrong with them you just want to keep 
the nervous system as calm and possible, but not look apathetic, you know, aw, that's so hard, honey. You know, tell me, tell me more. And uh, is there anything that you think would help? Do you have any ideas? Is there something at school that doesn't feel good or that's scaring you or is anything happening with the other kids? Just to try to ask some questions, but not in an interrogation sort of way, but sort of really calm. And, uh, and then, you know, assess what you think would be the first step. So it may be just getting a consultation for you and um, if there's a father there too, to go talk to someone to get ideas just before one jumps to uh, the problem with sending kids to psychiatrists by themselves is it already sets up a dynamic that there's something wrong with you and we're sending you to a doctor and we don't know likely it's that the child is a tuning fork for their environment. And even if there's nothing overtly traumatic going on, like I said, it could be that the kid is being mean at school or, or it could be, you know, that the child feels different in some way, maybe some, you know, again, preteen stuff, you have to think to sexuality and, um, identity issues and feeling different if you're in a small town where there's not a lot of tolerance for gay and transgender issues or um, if you're a kid who is at a lower socioeconomic uh, level and you're around rich kids, if you're just different, if you're a different religion. So difference is really um, a problem. The, the brain doesn't know what to do with difference and it often elicits fear and then again, too much fear with no place to go with it can lead to depression. Any emotion that's coming up in excess where the child feels like overwhelmed by emotion and simultaneously feels too alone with it will create, can create symptoms. And, and depression could be one. And acting out could be another. Uh, you know, feeling, being aggressive. Um, ADHD is a really interesting thing because there's so many overlap in the symptoms of that and the symptoms of anxiety. So people are so quick to diagnose ADHD and ADD and medicate. And I think a lot of the time it's really that the child is anxious yeah. and we have to look to the environment, what's going on. Yeah. Lots um, of listening involved in there, like yeah. lots and lots and lots of listening and just and, letting them talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And being calm. That's mm -hmm. the main thing because emotions are contagious and anxiety yes. is contagious. So yeah. child picks it up. Yeah. So how did you find your way to AEDP as your primary, I'm assuming it's your primary counseling method and do you employ, employ other therapy, you know, options or methods in conjunction with AE, AEDP? Mm, I love that question. Um, yes, I found my way to AEDP by just chance, uh, just total dumb luck. I was training to be or about to begin training to be a psychoanalyst, which is a four year certification program after you finish uh, your degree and, and get licensed. And uh, that was, I thought had to be, you know, the best therapist that I could be was to be uh, trained as a psychoanalyst and psychoanalytic psychotherapy. I had also read about CBT and I, I read a lot. So I, re, you know, would read textbooks cover to cover. I'm a good student. And um, <laughs> so, and I just, I always believe in like knowing a lot of different, having a lot of different methods. Uh, so I'm, I'm an open person because people are, everybody's different. And so you don't want to, I think I had a professor once that said, you don't want to fit a person to a method. You want to find the method for the person. 
So I just, a friend of mine had recommended that I see this woman named Diana Fosha speak. And um, so I Googled Diana Fosha. This was a good friend who knew me and I didn't even ask questions. I just said, okay. And I Googled Diana Fosha and I, she was speaking at a, at a, an, at a conference, an academic conference for professionals on emotions and attachment with three or four other people were on the stage, including Dan Siegel, that is pretty famous. I don't know if you've heard of him. He wrote yeah. a book called Mindsight and a couple of other clinicians and researchers. And when I saw uh, Diana speak, she was the founder of AEDP. She had, was the developer of AEDP and she's brilliant. And she was also trained analytically and found her way through these things called the short-term dynamic psychotherapies, which was kind of trying to speed up psychoanalysis and create like a crisis so that somebody would have kind of an emotional breakthrough. And there was already a feeling that if somebody dealt with buried emotions, I mean, psychoanalysis is all about uncovering regressed feelings and, and memories. So as soon as I saw Diana Fosha speak and present, she showed videotape from sessions of working this way. And that's how we train is, is videotape. So it's very, you really see what's going on. And she, I'm a science, neat, uh, a science nerd. I was going to say a geek, a science nerd and a geek equals a science geek. <laughs> um, so I needed to know something was backed up by science, especially when it came to emotions, which again, being raised in New York City by a psychiatrist, emotions and like the body, mind, body stuff always had this like, t you know, it was sort of my parents scoffed at it. It was like touchy feely BS. So when I heard her talking about emotions and the body and it was validated by hard science, I, and what I saw in the videotapes was enough to compel me to learn more. And uh, I took her immersion course, which is an in-depth where you're immersed in the theories and the work, and then went on to train. And the more I learned, I was concurrently studying AEDP and training and doing my psychoanalytic training which was hard because at first they felt divergent and like I couldn't reconcile them. So I would take a break uh, with one. And then I took a break with AEDP while I wanted to get the degree in psychoanalysis because it, I thought it would sort of legitimize my practice and uh, it was a good credential. But then I really, um, I, 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 as you said, I now practice with a, a, a theoretical and my stance with the people I work with is an ADP perspective, which depending on the type of psychoanalyst one is, would be either very, very different or similar because everything is kind of on a spectrum. So if you're, if you're a psychoanalyst that's more into attachment and emotions, you're going to almost look um, like more of an ADP therapist. But there's very particular ways that AEDP is, is unique, um, certainly than CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is going to be, which is operating under the idea that if you can change the way a person thinks, you'll be able to change the way they feel. And that's true to a certain extent. But what is more powerful is if you can change the way that a person feels by processing uh, by helping them get comfortable with emotions and be able to use them instead of block them and get triggered and carry away by them, that it will calm down the whole mind and the brain. And you'll just, it's going to change the way you think anyway. Mm -hmm. So both work, 
But to me, what's most effective in not having to do the work that you mentioned where in terms of resilience is if you're constantly having to work with your thoughts to change the way you feel, it's not as efficient than actually rewiring your brain using emotions and the body so that you no longer have to do that work and you're naturally more resilient and calmer. So it's fascinating that that's really, yeah, it's really, it's uh, unlocking something. It is, it it is unlocking. And the model uh, is called a healing model as opposed to an insight oriented model. You're really changing the brain. And Diana Fosha really calls it a, a model of transformation. And I have found that, that people have come to me who didn't get help in other therapies that uh, were able to be healed with this type of work. And uh, it, it makes sense. It's not that any of us are geniuses or anything. It's that if you're working with emotions in the body and you're also working slowly moment to moment so that I'm less listening to a story and asking someone to reflect on let's say how they felt yesterday when they had this fight with their husband, but what's happening in the room right now and then deepening that so they have an experience with their feelings that feels good at the end that they can then take out into the world and use their emotions in a much more advantageous and uh, emotionally healthy and productive way than constantly kind of um, monitoring their thought process and trying to shift from a, a glass half empty perspective, let's say, to a glass half full perspective. So if someone is interested in, um, they think AEDP could work for them, um, how would they go about finding a therapist who does practice this? Yeah, there's a a website, the AEDP Institute, which is a virtual institute, meaning that there's AEDP therapists all over the world and there's trainings uh, all over and there are therapists all over, but not enough. And again, one of the reasons that I started writing about this for the general public is because all this information on emotions and emotions being physical and trauma and attachment, all these things that I write about that affect us, everybody on a daily basis. This information was not being disseminated out to the general public. It was kind of cordoned to a small group of therapists that understand emotions and experiential methods and trauma methods of therapy. And now these methods you hear, I don't know if you've heard more about trauma-informed treatments. Okay. So this is, there's a big movement and the zeitgeist is changing. Oprah did a piece on 60 minutes the other day, this idea that our children, that we have to start to look at environments and understand how they're affecting children. So this whole way of understanding how the brain forms in an environment, either well when the environment is safe or in a more defensive maneuvers when the environment isn't safe, that the the children have to develop coping, have to develop coping strategies and the mind kind of has to contort in ways. And if the, if the, if children are working on kind of just keeping their, their kind of SHIT stuff together, right? Then it doesn't leave enough energy left because we're really talking about energy in the physics. You're an engineer, so you understand that emotions have an energy. And if we're diverting that energy to blocking emotions, then we don't have uh, energy left to, to, for vitality and uh, to go out into the world and be curious and creative and those type of things. So, um, so basically uh, I digressed for a moment 
you want to, you can find out information by going to the AEDP Institute, but you can also look up other trauma-informed messages. That's why I digressed okay. that this is um, okay. a method that it has a trauma-informed neuroscience basis to it. So other methods besides AEDP or EMDR, IFS, which the book has a lot in it, internal family systems therapy, this idea of looking at us as parts, myriad of, of different parts of us. So when we're in conflict, a part of us might want to go out and get a new job, and a part of us might want to just keep maintain the status quo because the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And how do you reconcile different parts, different aspects of ourselves? Um, so ADP Institute has a therapist directory where you could find a therapist. And I welcome people coming to my website and emailing me for help, either if people who want to train, who are, if there's any therapists listening to your podcast uh, today, or if there's any um, people that are interested to get help, I would be happy to be a resource where they could email me. And um, that, that would be great. an honor. Yeah, Great. Sounds wonderful. Yeah, um, and, uh, tell us about your book too. You mentioned it briefly um, about the tr change triangle. Um, it's coming. Is it uh, published already? It's published. It came out in in February, and um, the uh, the book really came out of an article that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago. I was working with a, a patient that had had tr what they call treatment resistant depression, where he, he couldn't get well. He tried every everything for about the last twenty years and in and out of psychiatric hospitals. And uh, when I when he came to me, I didn't want to repeat what had already been done. I, so I reconceptualized him as um, as a survivor of neglect and some trauma. Even though, again, the family was was lovely and well-meaning, but because of environment and all sorts of things, uh, things didn't go well. And he got better. And so I thought I had something to share. And I wrote I wrote an article and I sent it to the New York Times, and they published it, which was. Um, I wasn't really a writer so much before that. I had dabbled, and uh, they published the article, and it went viral, and uh, that's what led to somebody asking me to write more about it in a book, and I was thrilled because I had learned this, this triangle metaphor to understand the mind and emotions and thoughts and how it all works together, and when I learned it at that conference that I, first, that I just mentioned a while ago that I first went to where I, le where I met Diana Fosha. She presented this triangle as a way to understand how emotions work in the mind. And right there, my whole, my internal world was organized. And I thought this triangle should be public knowledge. They should teach it in high schools. And that's what I wrote the book about. So the book is called It's Not Always Depression because Random House wanted to name it the same thing as the article was also called It's Not Always Depression. And they wanted to capitalize on how popular that was. But the subtitle is Working the Change Triangle to Listen to the Body, Discover Core Emotions, and Connect to Your Authentic Self. And Love it. the book teaches, I basically translated from academics a simple, accessible book to understand emotions and to, I wrote seven stories from my practice of real life, how people go from defensive states, disconnected states of being, symptomatic states of being, which are on the top of the triangle where anxiety and defenses are, down to the bottom of the triangle where core emotions are. And then core emotions, when you experience them and honor them and validate them, are the doorway to the authentic self and feeling those seas of calm, 
confident, connected, which in jargony academic terms is the is regulating the mind and body, really regulating the nervous system to calm it down by being able to use the emotions in a way that um, we're wired to do. And I put exercises, so it's an education and it's an intellectual education for people that are interested in emotions, but for people that really want to start working self-help, there are exercises all throughout that I call experiments to begin to get a feel for how you experience this yourself after you've read the stories of how my patients have experienced it. And then there are people that are bringing the book to their therapists, or my hope was that people would would because therapy is expensive that I think you can use the book in groups where everybody is is learning how to be with other people in a way that's not fixing things but how to create safety so that people can speak authentically about their challenges and all together helping each other feel their feelings and come out the other side feeling more connected and like that relief where you finally get something off your chest and you have a good cry or you share how you feel and it's like, wow, I feel better. Yes. And yes. to do that again and again, it's a lifelong practice and a lifelong process that we, as we work this triangle going from the top to the bottom through our core emotions, over time, we develop more and more resilience and feel more and more kind of anchored to our sense of, of this calm sense of self so that even when life's challenges hit us, because this is not about not having emotions, emotions will always be triggered, but we'll be less triggered by things that are, um, you know, you'll be able to kind of stay calm amidst the winds of life. You won't get blown around as much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one last thing, where can people find out more about you? Um, I know you have your own website. Um, yes. Any, any contact information for you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I would love, and for anyone that finds this interesting or curious, is um, my website. You can either Google my name, Hillary Jacobs Hendel, H-E-N-D-E-L, and Hillary with one L, or you can go to thechangetriangle.com or just changetriangle.com, and I have free resources, and I have a blog on emotions and attachment and trauma um and uh and then it talks about the book there but the book is available from random house and around the world uh penguin uk and it's being published in in uh, Man mainland china and taiwan and south korea and um and poland and it's it's exciting because there's something in the zeitgeist where uh, the, the tides are changing and it's not only about, you know, thoughts and like thinking your way through it. Uh, you can't think your way through a, a feeling. You really have to learn to experience it and to learn to experience it. We first have to understand emotions. So we're not frightened of them anymore because I think people don't understand them and they get scared and they want to stay far away from them, but mm -hmm. it's um, not necessary. You can learn just a few things that kind of take away um, some of the, the problems with emotions. Yeah. Yeah. And well, they're actually thank you. Um, I uh, appreciate all of the advice you've given us um, <laughs> in the last uh, hour or so. And um, I'm sure the, the listeners will really find it interesting what we've been talking about. So um, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Sarah. I hope you enjoyed this interview. You can find the show notes within your favorite podcast app or by going to podcastbrunchclub.com slash HJH interview. Thanks and happy listening.